Thank you for tuning into this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you'd like to learn more about this podcast, visit lastborninthewilderness.com. Links in the description below. If you'd like to draw Patrick a line and have your message featured in the beginning of this episode, there are two ways to do that. For those in the United States, you can call the phone number 208-918-2837 and leave a voicemail of up to three minutes in length. Second, you can drop an audio file by following the instructions through the link in the description of this episode. Thanks for listening. Patrick, uh, my name's Jeff. Uh, I live in Austin, Texas. I've listened to your podcast on and off for about the last year and a half, maybe two years. And your most recent episode with Dar Jamil and Barbara Cecil really helped put things into perspective for me. Um, you know, when I was listening to your show, around this time last year, um, and also uh, the episode that you had on uh, Parallax Views, um, where you kind of laid everything out in the open, and I listened to that, and I, you know, I flew into a panic, and I just had this extended kind of apocalyptic anxiety attack for I don't know how long, and it, it exacerbated my depression it made it made things worse and it sort of threw me into a new mode of thinking and throughout this year you know I've listened to your work on and off and I've just tried to <clears throat> grow as a as a person as a, as an artist and as a, a husband and, and friend and son to to people uh and you know, I've I've always lived with that specter kind of hanging over me, and I think like what I heard on that episode is this deep need to accept the way things are going and to look at it in in one of two ways that we can let it we can let it take hold and, and leave us undone and we can give in to the pessimism that that mindset provides or we can stare it in the face and be contemplative and be reflective and be honest and tell ourselves and grit our teeth and look at it and say, I will keep moving forward and that's what I've done uh, the kind of the need to disregard or set aside the hope that is being offered the chance to go on with business as usual doesn't feel right anymore Jeff Thank you. Thank you very much for that call. Thank you for leaving that message. 
I have a lot I want to say on it. And I only featured the first part of that call here at the very beginning. I'm actually going to feature the latter half of that call at the very end of the episode, uh, just for the sake of, of time. It'll give me a chance also to respond to it more adequately. So if you look down in the description of this episode, you'll see a timestamp for when the introduction ends and when the interview begins. You'll also see a timestamp for when the interview ends and when the drop me a line call in my response to it will begin as well. So you'll see all that down in the description. Uh, So Jeff, that was beautiful. I have a lot I want to say on it. And it was truly one of my favorite episodes that I've produced um, with Dar and Barbara. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll get into that more at the end of the episode. I want to say one thing, though, and I have an announcement that I want to make for all you listeners. Um, you may have already seen this on social media if you follow this on any of the social media platforms or anything like that. But I'm just going to pitch it anyway. Um, so I'm going to be going to Brazil in December. I'm going to be going down to southern Brazil for two months. And... The point of it is to do a few different things. One is just to go down there and just to to see a friend and to to do all the great things that come with that. I've never been down to Brazil before, so it's a very new experience for me. Uh, But the kind of thing that I want to present to all of you is uh, I am trying to raise a a little extra money so that uh, Mina Wabi-Sabi, who is the managing editor at Gods and Radicals, who does incredible work. She's a political theorist and writer and activist. She does really great work just on her own, but she also knows two languages very fluently, at least two languages, uh, English and Brazilian Portuguese. So we had come up with this idea that I would travel down there and we could do some interviews together, that we could collaborate, that she could act as uh, not only as a fellow interviewer, but as a interpreter when need be. Uh, so I have the ticket to get down there. The Really, the big obstacle right now is to get enough funding to help us travel around Brazil. Brazil is a giant country, not just geographically, but there's a lot of subjects, a lot of things going on in Brazil. If you've ever paid attention to what's going on in Brazil, there's just so much happening. So we've been trying to raise a little extra money uh, to be able to fund that, to be able to fund those travels. So if you are able, if you are willing, please consider doing that. Uh, I have a few different options available. I have a GoFundMe campaign set up. I also have a Facebook donation campaign set up as well, if that's your thing. I also just have my PayPal donation link, uh, which is at paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. If you just want to do a direct donation, that's that's an option as well. But please consider supporting this. Um, it'll be a really great trip. It'll be really enriching. So really the thing is, is depending on how much funding we get, is going to really affect whether or not we get to do some of what we want to do or whether we get to do all of what we want to do. And I really want us to keep up with the podcast as I'm down there in Brazil. So I'm still going to be releasing podcasts weekly at least, and I'll be coming up with some really new, exciting content down in Brazil with Mina as well. So please consider supporting this in that way. That would be really, really helpful. Okay, enough with that. Uh, now on to the guest for this episode. I speak with William Hawes. William Hawes is a writer that specializes in politics and environmental issues. He's the author of the book, Planetary Vision, Essays on Freedom and Empire. But what got my attention with William uh, in particular was an essay that he published at his website and on his Medium account titled, Questioning the Extremely Online. This is a really sharp and insightful essay. I uh, 
<laughs> reading it, not only did it hit a few uh, nerves in me, as in I, it's talking about me, but it's talking about all of us. Um, we're all, not, not all, I mean, obviously, that's a huge generalization, but many of us, including myself, are what we would be defined as extremely online. So what does that mean? Uh, I'll just give you a very quick summary or definition of that, uh, at least what William provides in his essay. Um, to be extremely online is to spend too much time on the web, scrolling through social media feeds, out of habit, checking email or notifications dozens of times a day. And that's something I'm certainly guilty of. But to get uh, even more particular, what he hones in on in his essay, you know, he's talking more about mainstream journalism and alternative media commentators. Uh, he says here, they employ on both the right and the left, uh, they constantly post every news update sharing a gazillion times every day each and every version and opinion on a current event post-tweet about the lead news stories of the day, whether it's something interesting about global warming or something as ignorant and banal as the president's tweets, prognosticating about the presidential election a year and a half before it happens, using dubious polls or statistics to bolster weak arguments, and basically reacting to every media spectacle with behavior, including, but not limited to, juvenile tantrums, posturing, faux outrage, jaded cynicism, pompous virtue signaling, ironic detachment, and narcissistic self-aggrandizement. <laughs> so, I mean, I... I, I really wanted to talk about this because I spend so much time online. I mean, I, my, my excuse is that I do this podcast, right? I'm putting out content, releasing episodes, keeping up with all the things that are involved in doing this project or whatever. But so much of it isn't really about that at all. So much of it is truly this sort of fix or addictive quality to social media, to having a smartphone in your pocket or in your hand all the time looking at notifications, checking, you know, constantly communicating with, you know, dozens of people or whatever every day or every week or whatever. It's it's kind of an interesting world that we're in now, isn't it? Where this is the reality that we seem to have adopted. And it just sort of snuck up on us. I, I, I remember when this really wasn't the case. I'm just barely old enough to remember when the internet started to really become like a thing in everybody's lives just barely. I mean, you know, I'm like 30. So, you know, take that for what you for what it is. But I think particularly what's important about, about what Bill wrote here is he gets into that, but he just goes even deeper, talking about the ways in which, you know, those of us that are on the left, maybe we're, uh, you know, eco radicals, or, you know, radical environmentalists, or, um, you know, radical leftists, anti-capitalist, anarchists, all of us, to a great degree, when we are online, have been molded and shaped by the algorithmic logic of these programs, of these applications, of these websites. These gigantic, multi-billion, multi-trillion dollar companies that are behind this are trying to do exactly what Bill points to in this essay, which is they just want your attention because that makes them money. That's how this whole game works. So everything gets channeled and molded and manipulated and funneled through this particular structure of, of social engagement. And how does that inform our activism? How does that inform how we engage with news, with the world, with world events, with how we organize ourselves collectively to resist these things? It's really important to analyze this. 
And so he does a great job of breaking that all down. I, I ask him to get into all of that in this episode. Uh, you can go to his website, williamhaws.wordpress.com. And Haws is spelled H-A-W-E-S. You can also follow him on Medium at Will Haws. And yeah, he has a bunch of other work online at various other publications. So I'd recommend you go check his work out there. But I'll, of course, have a link to this uh, essay in particular. I think everyone should read it. And make you think. It makes you think. It makes you really reflect on what you're doing online and what this whole beast of a thing is, uh, what we've become, and how it informs our politics and how we choose to engage with, uh, I mean, politics in general, but you know how we choose to resist this ecocidal, genocidal, world-eating thing that we're a part of. It's it's worth contemplating at the very least. So Will has some really cutting insights in this essay. So Bill, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. And thank you all for listening to me up to this point. Here is my interview with William Hawes. All right, Bill, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today. Um, I, as I mentioned before we started this, I have to thank Rob Simetz, who I've collaborated with on the podcast several times and is a good friend of mine. And he's, uh, I know he's, I think he's interviewed you before for his own show and has recommended you a few different times. And uh, I finally, you know, listened and, and read a, particularly this essay that I wanted to focus on uh, that was published on your website, on your Medium profile as well, called Questioning the Extremely Online. And I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really well-written, uh, multi-leveled, multi-layered analysis of how the internet and social media and the algorithms that come with that have molded and shaped our discussions about politics, about activism, about our very perceptions of reality itself, uh, and particularly from a, a leftist or anti-capitalist perspective. You know, how is this informing our behavior and action? And it's it was really, really, uh, you know, it's funny, actually, I want to say this uh, before I really ask you th- the first question, but I just had to make a comment I was telling my friend this yesterday, I was telling him about this interview I was going to do with you and how I was reading your essay and I kept on getting distracted because I'm reading it <laughs> online, right? Like I'm trying to read this essay and I'm trying to like write questions and thoughts down and then I would get a notification and I would get distracted. I'm over here like now I'm writing people back about this thing and then oh, an email just came in and I jump over here and then I'm like, oh, I need to check this thing. And before I know it, I completely, I'm completely off track. <laughs> completely out of you know not focused on what i'm supposed to be doing and yep. it, and i kept on coming back to your essay and i'm like damn it this is exactly <laughs> what you're talking about to some degree and so part of what attracted me to it is just to sort of analyze my own actions my own habits and behaviors and my own addict my own addiction honestly to social media and and all of that so um mm-hmm. i just had to make that little <laughs> comment but, you know, I just want to first ask this, this very basic question, which is, what do you mean when you say extremely online? What does it mean to be extremely online? <laughs> well, I think the idea probably started, you know, from uh, people kind of reflecting on them, their own actions and those around them on Twitter, probably. But it, it's pretty, you know, standard for all of social media. Um, it's just like you said. Um, you know, checking your notifications, you know, always, you know, just habitually, you know, taking your phone out of your pocket and just checking it. And, you know, 
all that all those kind of little uh, little things that are kind of um, built in to you know how how social media and the more broadly inter- the internet operates it, it's it wants us it wants more of our time it wants more of our you know energy of our of our creativity and it wants to reduce our lives to to always being you know you know mm-hmm. online four seven yeah uh, yeah yeah so the idea is that social media and the various i mean these are capitalists these are corporations that are are treating social media as a means to as you said you know capture our attention and mm-hmm. they're willing to do it by whatever means necessary because it, it benefits their bottom line to do so. Um, and so they create these very addictive um, mm-hmm. technologies and, and algorithms within those technologies, as we see with smartphones, the internet in general, social media, uh, to direct attention towards them. And they have all kinds of ways of, of directing the conversation, of, of framing certain subjects, uh, world events, whatever it may be. And everyone is kind of <laughs> falling for it because once you're in the logic of the system, it's really hard to see it for what it really is. That's what I kind of got out of your your essay. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if, if <clears throat> all of social media is, is driven by ad revenue, so that's that's what's driving the whole the whole thing. So, um, um, you know they'll they'll you know they use there's terms like you know the attention economy, and then there's the other side of it, which I didn't really dive into too much in the essay, but I kind of alluded to um, the term you know surveillance capitalism. Um, there's a great book with that title out. Um, encourage everyone to you know read it and. Um, you know, it, it's not just a matter of um, having us hooked. It's also a matter of, um, you know, kind of uh, digitally tracking everyone. And that's uh, another part that I, I didn't, again, kind of ran out of space within that uh, essay. But uh, it's another important part of the, the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that um, what you've pointed to is is the way in which activism uh, you know, leftist anti-capitalist activism has been largely co-opted, or at least the energies of of the activists is co-opted by these, um, you know, social media uh, profiles, or or you know, being online and interacting with people online has become a substitute. And this is an overgeneralization, but there is something to yeah. it in saying that much of our energies have been co-opted by something that feels real, but is really not in in the sense that, you know, we're just sitting here typing on a screen and interacting and having hot takes and, and instantaneous reactions to news stories. And one thing you talk about is this sort of oversaturation of like, that's something I kind of wanted to comment on a little bit. I mean, the world is seemingly going to shit <laughs> and we're watching it in real time. But really, the kind of action that's required is to, to even even moder- even to even address it in any sort of small way is often I feel like those energies are being co-opted by online participation. So having your opinion, your hot take is seen as a a sort of um, it, it makes up for in some sense of what disempowerment we feel about what's yeah. happening. 
Do you know what I mean? And I feel like social media fuels that feeling because they know that's part of the addiction to their platforms. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, they've, um, they've hacked our, our neurobiology, you know, they've, they've figured it out. I was thinking, uh, the other day about <clears throat> it was something about when Facebook first started, um, when you would get a no- notification, the notification color would be blue. But what they decided was that and for some reason, blue wasn't getting enough people to, cl- to click back and see what their notification would be. So they switched the color to red to make it more um, another little like just basic, you know, you know, trick of, <laughs> of uh, how our physiology works is that oh they they changed it to more uh enticing uh thing for us and again they have they have they pay people you know millions of dollars to figure out you know how to further you know basically hack our minds yeah and um again it's it's if, if it's all driven by money you know it's it's just like any other part of our society it it leads to this um this hyper um, stratified and hierarchical system, where again, there's only a few people that are really, um, you know, have that can you know have a living by you know doing whatever it is, podcasts or you know YouTube or whatever it is, you know, stuff like that, online influencing. So it's a very um, it's pretty sad. <laughs> yeah. Well, could you speak to something that was brought up is the class division and the way that manifests through, um, honestly, just through the infrastructure of the internet. So <laughs> you have in cities and more densely populated areas, internet connections are often much faster. It's much easier to connect your smartphone to a very fast network, to a fast connection. So people living in densely populated areas uh, really have the so-called benefits of having this online or extremely online behavior, this culture that comes from that. But people that live in more rural or outside of these dense population zones often don't have this internet speed to really participate in the way that um, more metropoli- uh, people in more metropolitan areas can. Do you know what I mean? Um could you speak a little bit to that about the, the the class divisions that emerge as a result of the way the internet is structured? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, um, again, it, um, it's mostly beneficial to upper class, middle class, and urban people. And um, what one of the studies that I referenced in the in the piece was um, mentioned this idea of technophilia, which is you know, people that have more access at a younger age and that use uh, the internet, social media, and um, just kind of computer and technology in general. If you have more access and you get more, you know, you have more fun and entertainment with it at a, at a young age, you tend to um, not be as critical of, of how you are being used <laughs> by the technology. And again, in uh, you can look at any rural area in the in the country um, and see what their you know what percentage of the population has you know you know Wi-Fi connections. It's pretty low in in, in lots of places. Um, you know, a lot of times under fifty percent of the population in, in very rural areas has you know Wi-Fi and stuff like that. So um, a lot of the commentary that you'll see. 
you know, on Twitter or whatever, um, a lot of people can't relate to that <laughs> because they don't they they don't have you know that instantaneous access um, that people in cities do. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting too because I can imagine if you're a person that isn't exposed as much to online. Um, I don't, I don't want to call it a conversation. Sometimes it's something much worse, but it's like, if you, <laughs> so say for instance, imagine if you're a person, you know about Twitter, you know about Facebook, you know a little bit about, obviously you, you read the news, you know what's going on, but say you jump into Twitter like I did a few years ago and I was completely dumbfounded by it because it it was just a bunch of very, um, it was like the soundbite it's similar to what a soundbite is, except it's written written down. It's like, you know, 140 characters or whatever tops. And yeah. everyone's having these little arguments about really seemingly <laughs> things that only matter to this group of people. Do you know what I mean? Right. And if you're yeah, outside absolutely. of that, and if you're of a, say, lower class, you live in a rural area, none of that shit applies to you. You know what I mean? And it, it seems to yeah. me it's like this insular world that's been created and technology is... Uh, as it's moved in the direction that it has um, benefits from that, as in the people that make that technology and profit from it are profiting, right? But seems to create an even further divide between rural and urban populations, just in that regard alone. But um, so I, I wanted to quote something here from the article um, in the way that social media uh, shapes our reactions, which I think speaks to me quite a bit because I do so much of my work online. Obviously that's, the, that's, that's where my work is at. But uh, I just wanted to, to quote this here, which is when a post appears on social media, often if you don't know, or if you know the contributor and some of the followers and friends, you can glean and predict what the reaction is going to be and who is going to say what, depending on the news of the day, I can guesstimate what the takes will be of my various friends and those I follow I admit this can be sometimes comforting given the horrendous news we deal with daily. However, it is it also kind of implies that people are that real people are reacting, thinking, and forming commentary al- algorithmically, as if our thoughts now mimic apps like Spotify and Pandora, which play tracks from one's favorite musicians, or at least similar artists which don't offend or won't offend the listener's tastes. How banal and horrifying all at once. With podcasts or YouTube videos as well as message boards, one can see political com- commentary forming a script where individuals rattle off reels of their greatest hits of points, observations, and reflections, rather than engaging with the subject matter. No matter how hard we try, social media can never replicate oral traditions and real-life conversations. Dysfunction is baked into modern capitalist-based digital communication. Um... So let's try to unpack that just a little bit, which is, I mean, you said it perfectly in that, but I kind of want you to elaborate a little more because there is that sense that we are following a script, that the kind of conversations that we're going to have is being generated or molded for us based on these algorithms that we see in Facebook or Twitter or social media in general. Um, And how different is that from organic conversations that we have in the real world? I guess maybe I could ask that question to you. Sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, you, you can never get, um, the person's, you know, emotional state or how they're speaking, you know, their mannerisms, their nuances, 
all the little nonverbal communication things that occurs in a normal face-to-face conversation. So, I mean, the general reaction online when you when you disagree with someone is just like instant, you know, polarization and kind of just some angry <laughs> environment that it creates. So, uh, when or and, and when, again, when you're when you're face to face with someone, you 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 can empathize. Uh, more easily, you understand that you're, you know, you're speaking to a fellow human being, and that gets, that really kind of goes out the window with um, online debating and and that kind of thing. From from what I've seen, so. Mm-hmm. So you describe here how dysfunction is baked into the modern capitalist-based digital communication. Um, do you think that? the internet could have taken a different direction because I feel like there was a point. I know that, I know that the internet was funded by the military. Essentially it was um, research and development, right? We know that, but at at a certain point it was sort of handed over, I guess you could say, or it was made open to um, outside innovation and, and, you know, thinking about how it can be made into a kind of consumer based thing. But there was this vision by many people mm-hmm. to turn mm-hmm. it into a, a place where true freedom of information can can reside mm-hmm. um, and allow for for something like that to exist in the world um, and mm-hmm. we saw you know big examples of this for instance with WikiLeaks or or any other whistleblower organizations getting away with what they've gotten away with revealing secrets uh, about the state and corporations and banks and whatnot um, we've seen it in all kinds of other ways as well um, you know, in your kind of thinking about this, you know, at what point do you think that that shift really, where where you really see the capitalists really take over and really funnel much of the uh, online participation through their platforms? Yeah, I think there, I think, um, I can't remember if I'm thinking of the right documentary, maybe a hyper normalization that I think that might go into that a little of the kind of utopian perspective of you know during the, the 90s early 90s late 80s of silicon valley and before that really got totally you know fucked up um yeah there was a the kind of you know that you could have this anarchic you know utopian you know freely accessible open access internet to everyone um and i think that's that there was a little bit of momentum there, but it, uh, the people who there's also a bit of, you know, being overly <laughs> optimistic um, and a little bit of marketing <laughs> by uh, the companies involved because they weren't really trying to form, you know, nonprofit cooperatives or anything like that. It was it was more of just a few um, entrepreneurs who didn't really have any power. Right. It's they don't they didn't really understand how uh, political economy works and so they 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 uh, kind of laid out this this vision, which now, of course, it looks totally hopelessly naive and um, childish. But yeah, there was there was potential, but again, you have to examine the uh, you know they were, these were just you know kind of computer programmers and stuff, and they're kind of uh, very they're very you know they're specialists, so they're kind of stuck in their own in their own corner of the world, but they, again, they didn't really understand the broader forces at play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, I want to, I want to ask about, um, 
Because I really think it's important to hone in on this point, which is how technologies inform our perceptions and views of our actions and, and the world that we're a part of. So you mentioned in the article at some point about the way that the printing press you know, reshaped people's understanding of communication and information and sh- and all of that. It, it informed the development of the various cultures that adopted the printing press. And we could see the same thing when steam power came into existence. Um, if, it's interesting to look at some of the leading intellectual scientists at the time when new technologies were emerging, they began to use tech- those technologies as analogies for how the human body or the human mind works. Mm-hmm. Like they were thinking, oh yeah, the body is like, has all these valves and gears and, and you know, steam pressure and all this stuff. And you're like, that's so peculiar. Because it so <laughs> obviously doesn't. And anybody with, you know, bleeding or even having a, a chance to look inside a body knows that's the case. But that was the metaphors they were using. Um, and then I see as we've entered into this age of, com- you know, computers and, and digital technologies, more and more I'm hearing from these tech, uh, like Elon Musk or, or I don't know, any of these guys, they constantly use the metaphor of how human consciousness is like a computer. It's yeah. a software. It's yeah. our memory has, it's a hard drive. We just have to find it. We have to learn how to replicate it. I mean, and it seems to me that human beings are so not computers. We're so far away from that actually being the reality of the situation. Um, so I think thinking about that, you know, how has online activism been informed by the sort of inherent blind spots that come with digital technologies and digital forms of communication and social media? Do you know what I mean? Like how, what are some of the major blind spots that you're seeing within leftists, anti-capitalists, <laughs> anarchists, all these types when it comes to the fact that they are extremely online, as you say, do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I would say read more. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would, yeah, I would say as much as you can read an actual book because, like you said, when when you read online, you get all these all these distractions constantly, and so it happens with me too. So I have to, you know, shut that down and just me and my word processor for a while, and that's it. And um, but yeah, Mike, kind of. The really basic framework that, again, I didn't really, I just kind of alluded to it is um, like something like Society of the Spectacle that goes in, that talks about, you know, what happens when when everything becomes, you know, virtual, whenever everything is just viewed as a symbol. And again, you see online, all it's online activism all the time. There's just like, well, this is what I do. This is like, it becomes part, it becomes part of you know, the person's ego is identifying with this, again, this virtual world and this virtual personality. And so another, again, another kind of baseline thing that I talk about is um, Marcuse, one dimensional man, like that's, that kind of spelled it out, like, over 50 years ago, it's like, well, we are, we, you know, you're right, the, <laughs> consciousness and the human mind can never be reduced to a computer but we can get pretty close and that's where we're going and that's kind of again if you go further back what Aldous Huxley talked about in Brave New World is like this is our soma now 
This is it. This is all. This is what the elite are going to give us. They're just going to give us little drips of like dopamine rushes, and you know, the rest of the world is going to turning more and more into a hellscape. So that's you know, it's pretty bleak, but it seems pretty accurate from my perspective. Yeah, it's kind of a. I don't think irony is the right word, but I'm trying to basically say that as the world becomes desecrated further as a result of industrial culture, industrial civilization expanding outwards and deeper into the earth, um, people are turning more and more to these distractions, I think, that come from online entertainment and online participation. You know, it doesn't seem that far-fetched to me that the idea that the world is becoming increasingly urbanized and, again, desecrated, that people are going to turn more and more towards virtual reality and towards an insi- kind of an insular world that will give them all the stimulation that they could ever want without actually participating in reality any longer. And so it's this thing, it's like the very technologies that are providing us that option and that world to live in is the very thing that's that's creating a world that's harder and harder to participate and be a part of, you know? Yeah. The, po- yeah. the political, social, economic ecological reality that we're a part of is increasingly uh depressing and I, <laughs> you know it's it's hard you know I, I, it's funny because i'll be online and i'll read more and more stuff every day and i'm like i'm overwhelmed right now and <laughs> you know but i'm somehow addicted to that information at the same time it's a weird thing it's a it's it's like a drug in the sense that you are addicted to it but you know it's bad for you absolutely you know yeah absolutely and that's the thing. It's like if you if you if you want to stay informed day to day, you have to. You kind of have. They're forcing. They they're forcing us. If you want to, you know, get in information, you have to go. You have to go on your phone or on your computer or whatever whatever it is. Like there's no there's no other option. But again, there's there are costs associated with it that are uh, clearly. Um, I think we're we're of this about the same age, and you know. We have uh, mutual uh, colleagues and, you know, acquaintances and friends. We've probably, you know, seen the same kind of thing where I just, I hardly use social media when I do. I go on and I'm like, oh, everyone here is still batshit crazy and doesn't want to, you know, talk about anything that matters. So I'm out. And then, you know, (laughs) go back in a few days or a week and try again. And it's still the same. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, I wanted to touch on something you said earlier because you were I was asking you about what you would recommend maybe activists or people who are engaging in activism online. You know, something you say in the piece is that and I think there is some legitimacy in saying this, but I, I would like you to flesh it out a little more. But you kind of speak against not against, but you're critical of this idea that theory like political theory, like reading some dense, you know, pretty intellectual work is because it requires an attention span, because it requires study and research. Um, people are like, well, you know, this isn't going to appeal to the masses. So no, we don't need theory anymore. And while I find, yeah, when it comes to on the ground, you know, talking to people, certainly speaking in terms that come from some obscure or not so obscure French philosopher or something is not going to necessarily resonate with a fucking coal miner. Do you know what I mean? But if you speak a language they understand, 
just like anyone would use to describe exploitation and class division, then certainly mm-hmm. you can get people on board. But I think what you're pointing to is there's a real inherent lack of attention span and laziness that I think mm-hmm. comes with the 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 idea that, oh, we don't need theory anymore. Um, yeah, could you speak to that a bit? Sure, yeah, uh, happy to. I, yeah, um, that seems to be a, a, a big one, is that um, uh, digi- in terms of digital journalism, um, it's like there are there are kind of unspoken rules mm-hmm. <laughs> that you can't that you well you, if you cross you're in, you know they're not gonna they're not gonna publish you because for whatever reason um, and yeah one of those rules is um, one of those unspoken rules is like um, don't you know don't go too far into the weeds or too far down a rabbit hole because you're gonna lose people's attention and lose readers. Um, and, uh, you know, again, like, like you were, uh, pointing out, that's a, in, in general, that's a, that's a good, that's a good, uh, a good advice. Uh, but it tends to, to go too far sometimes. Um, because again, it's kind of a, uh, uh, paternalistic or, uh, condescending viewpoint. It's like some people won't, you know... <laughs> understand certain things and I saw something a while ago is something about uh, um, Vietnam and Ho Chi Minh and like he was like you know training or, or um, you know reading uh, Marx to uh, illiterate you know peasants you know in, mm-hmm. the, in the in the rice paddies or whatever you know trying to get them to, to join up and fight so it's like yeah okay your that advice broadly makes sense but guess what on some level it, it doesn't because you're you're again you're it, you're you're assuming things about people that you don't know and haven't met and and um, it gets taken too far. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that that's true, and you know, and it's funny because I see this right now. Because um, you, you were talking a little bit about the specialization of these um, kind of computer. Um, engineers and people that were kind of in the beginning of the internet when it was really taking off they had this very idealized utopian vision of what the internet could be um and that's really because of specialization they couldn't really see the other systems that were that they're engaging with and that they're a part of and the trajectory of the these systems right and i see this right now with climate activism or environmental activism um speaking of online culture man i mean i don't know if you've been at all invested or at least observed in any way the i think i know where you're going with this yeah Yeah. so what i'm seeing is that people don't actually understand what capitalism is how it functions how it preserves itself and and um tries to perpetuate itself into the future right it wants to be the legitimate and only legitimate system and anything that stands in the way of that anything that actually is um, a threat to that system will be either ignored or directly challenged if it if it works for the benefit of capitalists to do so, or will just be completely destroyed through you know whatever means necessary, depending on how much of a threat it is, right? So when I see people thinking that activism is is going out for a climate strike on a Friday, where yeah, it's amazing, millions of people in the streets around the world, beautiful. But it's 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 not inconveniencing really anybody. Uh, you have 
prime ministers and various other corporate executives <laughs> out there marching, celebrities holding, you know, signs. Yeah, this is great. And I'm just like, this is not uh, really going to do anything except serve some other interests that are kind of um, propelling this movement forward, you know. And so uh, I just wanted to ask because what I'm seeing is a real fr a frustrating feeling from me is that people don't actually have the ability to understand the systems that they're a part of and they don't ask the right questions. And so they may be genuinely concerned about the environment and climate change, but they're not really understanding, one, the scientific data and where it leads in its conclusions, and two, they don't understand how capitalism works and how going out on the street and marching with a few signs isn't going to really do anything. Um, so getting back to that idea of theory, that seems really important right now because people are just, they don't, they don't understand necessarily how any of this works. You know what I mean? Yeah, I absolutely. Uh, yeah, the yeah the thing is, you know, if you're talking about you know young people, you know, kids in high school and college that are going out and striking, go keep keep doing it because they're they're going to get it. They're going to get it eventually. Um, you know, they they understand the climate problems, and yes, they're not connecting it to the economic system, but they're they they're getting there. So I would say, um, you know. Give them support and be a role model if you and try and help if you can, and um, because a lot of the um, again the the online discourse is like oh these people are just you know these are just silly kids and they don't understand like they don't understand how all these other things are are tied into you know our society and it's like well you know they kind of do they're just they don't like like you were kind of alluding to they don't always have can't articulate it that well, but they're, they're getting there. And so, um, especially as they gr get a little older and get into the job market and see how that's going to turn out for them, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and see how, you know, the prospect of getting a, a, a career like their parents, how that type of life is going to turn out for them. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to get it real fast. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of people kind of dumping on the climate marchers and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, of course. Um, you should roast Justin Trudeau for <laughs> and all those people for sure. What a freaking hypocrite! Um, but the kid, the kids are getting there. So um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and um, you know, I really like the term that you used um, in here. I know I don't think it's your term, but you use it called limbic capitalism. As in, yeah. yeah. Uh, could you explain that term a little bit? Yeah, that's from a recently published uh, book called Age of Addiction. And yeah, that basically, um, it talks about, um, you know, digital communication. Again, the limbic system, right? It's like your lizard brain, the part of your, your deep um, <clears throat> evolutionary um, um physiology of how you know how you how you react to things and how you navigate the world that's so that's that's the limbic part and then um in the book um he talks about how everything in and we're, we're it's not just you know obviously it's not just uh being online or whatever it's just everyone has kind of a, a drug or a soma again as huxley put it that kind of helps us get us through the drudgery and 
having to deal with all the like the trauma and the grief of you know uh, being part of a world that's just falling to, falling apart. Um, so yeah, that's um, that's the basics, and th- that book kind of really delves in uh, deep. Yeah. Okay. So I, I just think it's just it's fascinating because it is, as you pointed to, it is a form of mind control. And, you know, I think we've probably hit on this numerous times, but the ways in which uh, social media and these these corporations like Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or any of these giant, uh, well, YouTube is a part of Google, I guess, but, <laughs> you know, these giant corporations, these huge conglomerates, uh, they, they do have a finely tuned, um, they have these tools that they know exactly how to, how to, how to get people in on it. You know, how, how, like you mentioned, the Facebook thing where they had the blue icon and they switched to red. You know, just mm-hmm. the basic understanding of how color informs our actions and our reactions to things. I remember once I was reading about public relations and and um, uh, was talking about, oh, marketing as well. So, it's talking about how fast food companies and other restaurants, what they do is they know exactly how to to direct people's behavior. So if you walk into a McDonald's or a Wendy's, they have specific colors that they paint their restaurants, like with Wendy's or whatever, there's red or um, yellow for McDonald's or or whatever. And that creates a certain mood for the people that come in. Like they want you to stay longer or they want you to, to leave quickly based on the, the, the colors that they use and the music that's in there and all this stuff, all that is thought out. And I don't think people even think about that how their behavior is being shaped and molded by little uh, kind of subconscious psychological mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, that's um, a lot. um, A lot of that is, is, um, again, it's funded by the military and um, it's used in in their, in what they do and also the intelligence community and what they do um, as well. So, and again, they just um, they'll they'll hire you know psychologists and et cetera et cetera, and you know pay them lots of money to figure out you know exactly how to pacify and numb and you know con- control you know mass mass populations. Right. Yeah. And so I think that that social media in many ways is kind of a gift to them. Because who, who's more tapped, you know, how, how do you capture the attention of millions and billions of people, if not to have them all online? And certainly there's a lot of variables to consider, but I think that's where the algorithmic side of it comes in, where they're like, a lot of it is artificial intelligence. A lot of it isn't even, there aren't like necessarily people sitting there trying to right. actively direct people's attention to certain types of things but they've created the very sophisticated algorithms which are constantly learning and incorporating new information into its processing. So that to me is a freaky thing because you'll see people get like banned from Facebook or banned from Instagram or banned from any of these platforms and they'll get this notification saying, oh, you violated our terms of service, but they're like, no, I didn't. What did I do? And they look at the information that they were being banned for it has absolutely nothing to do with the terms of service. It's just because some algorithm picked it out and said, oh, that's inappropriate, and they're mm-hmm. automatically banned. And you can mm-hmm. imagine a whole political ideologies, whole groups of activists and people getting just kind of eradicated silently. Uh, eradicated is a strong <laughs> word, but excluded from the discussion. Uh, that to me, it seems to be the big danger here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 
and um, you know, in terms of the United States, um, you have Trump. In terms of UK, you have Brexit. All those issues are connected, or all those those <laughs> are connected to um, people being you know misled and outraged and um, advertised to um, to kind of you know generate. It, to, 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 for elite interests, right? It's, um, and it's happening all over the world. Um, the, the internet and social media has been weaponized to serve author authoritarian um, governments. Um, yeah, so that's another thing that, you know, kind of people are, you know, wising up to, but um, it's not really, again, like, a lot of people probably already forget like the whole Cambridge Analytica thing where, you know, that, so the idea of like, you know, that as much as, as much as things are, are kind of the same, um, they're in terms of how incompetent, uh, lazy and ignorant our political system is, it's, it's heading in a wilder, direction because these these forces have been <clears throat> these uh yeah these force these capitalist um technolo technological social media forces are being unleashed to kind of prod and cause outrage and enrage people over you know things that are just totally you know non-issues like you know illegal immigration and stuff like that so right yeah, well, what's scary is I think particularly with right-wing or far-right uh, subcultures online is that those those subcultures, as we've seen with mass shootings here in the United States and, and other examples, maybe around the world um, and other places, for instance, that shooting in New Zealand, um, we're seeing how uh, these these online subcultures of, of right-wing, far-right ideologies uh, is radicalizing certain types of men. And this is also fits within the context of late capitalism, the alienation, isolation, all of that that comes with being a part of the system. But that in, that coupled with the these insular right-wing chat, chat rooms and all this stuff, you just see people becoming radicalized until to the point where they go out and they will shoot people. And, uh, you know, based on this false faulty uh premise that the white race is being eradicated or erased Do you know what i mean like there's this whole internal logic there in online cultures i'm not trying to blame any particular social media platform or anything but it creates a certain context of engagement and it can really detach people from the reality and it's it's really frightening because that seems to be another phenomenon that i don't think people were really anticipating that there would be this fueling of right-wing resentment and anger. And as the system itself is sort of buckling under the pressures of the time that we're in, we're seeing people act in an increasingly violent and erratic uh, manner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's something about, um, uh, they were asking the YouTube programmers, you know, people that work at YouTube, why all their, like, if you search for like political commentary, like all their stuff like leads to fascist and like <laughs> Nazi propaganda. So like some, some like, um, um, out like some scared to death, like 
middle-aged mom was like complaining about like how their kid left their YouTube on like autoplay and it started out as something like completely like like just mainstream you know whatever political centric stuff and then yeah. it kept going and going and all, all of a sudden this this kid is you know you know being uh learning about the third Reich and stuff so <laughs> I think right and the the YouTube program was like well that's how we get people to to watch longer is the, the stuff that outrages people and kind of gets them riled up that's that's the stuff that 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 sells because you know more time spent is more ad revenue for them so that's what that's what they're going for right yeah it's like it's going for the most base thing which is ad revenue and out of that it's like well what what yeah like you said what keeps people watching videos oh it's outrage now it could be outrage at the fact that they're watching nazi propaganda or it could be outrage that (laughs) that the nazis are telling them that this and this group is the reason why they are losing their job or whatever, you know? So it can come from yeah. a different place, but it's nonetheless, it's anger, outrage and all of that that's yeah. being fueled. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask kind of a final question or point I wanted to get to is the way that the left has internalized the logic of technologies and digital technologies and all this. Um, Cause something you really point to is like the only option we really have in light of the ecological climate crisis, whatever is to, to, to have degrowth to, we, we cannot maintain the system as it is today, let alone what's being projected into the future. You were citing some statistics about how much power is used to generate, how much power is generated. Electric, electric energy has to be generated in order to keep the internet infrastructure going as it continues to grow. Um, but you point to how we need to have degrowth. <laughs> we need to deindustrialize. That's the yeah. trend that we should be heading towards. Um, but instead, what we're seeing within, and this is a, a, only a subsection. I mean, this is only a part of the left, but you mentioned the book and the term fully automated luxury communism mm. and how the left thinks, okay, well, we can have automation and everything take care of us. But you're, again, you're pointing to the reality of what we're really dealing with right now and how that's just a fantasy. That's another utopian dead end. Uh, what is what is that? What is lux- fully automated luxury <laughs> communism? Uh, yeah, so... Um, yeah, it's the idea that we kind of accelerate the, the rate of our technological innovation to um, get, us, get us out of this mess. It's... Um, um, that's the basic, the basic idea of it. And, um, so yeah, there's a, there's a, a lot of people that talk about it. There's a book with that title out and, um, it really is, yeah, it's really, um, the people that are involved in kind of promoting this again, they're, they're, they're identifying with the with the current system in some way. There's, there's some things that they don't, want to give up some levels of luxury or or affluence that they just don't, they can't see themselves living without. Right. So they have to have, they have to form this, this myth (laughs) of, okay, well I can keep having my latte every day or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, you know, um, and, and, um, it's just not going to happen. If you, again, if you look in terms of, you know, how much, 
fossil fuels and uh, power is used every single day around the world, it's just not going to happen. You know, we've we've had a um, all of our technology is based on using cheap and easy fossil fuels, right? That all of our factories, all everything around the world, that's what it's all driven by. And the fact, and there's no way, even if you, you know. Even if you make renewables all over the world, there's not going to be enough to the way the way you know wind and solar work. Anyways, it's not going to be enough to have this this all this huge power capacity for us. So again, if you want to um, make an actual, if you want to give us a shot in hell, you're gonna have to, yeah. Those people have to have to be dealt with. They, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it's like look. We can either listen to indigenous people and how they're living and how they've they're they're adapting and making you know doing stuff all around the world. We can either listen to the indigenous or we can all we can all just disappear. We'll we'll all go extinct. That's that's pretty much it. It's not. It's you just you have to put it bluntly. You know, there's there's no way to make someone feel good when you're you know you're just shredding their their delusions of how you know how much. <laughs> You know how many espressos they can have at Starbucks every you know week or whatever, right? Um, yeah. Well, it's funny. And just to reflect on my own part in this, because you know I sit here and I've talked a great deal about similar things about you know this way of living and being is just not going to work. You know, we have to do all these different things to get away from that. But I also am lulled into complacency. You know, we're talking specifically, as I mentioned at the beginning, about being infinitely distracted trying to read your essay. Uh, I, too, you know, have a sense of, like, wanting the social capital in a certain kind of way that comes with doing podcasts and having your voice heard and and speaking to interesting people and doing interviews and all this stuff, right? I know that that's a part of me, and I know that's something. So I know on a certain level there's a contradiction within myself that I don't know how to really reconcile, so I just do keep on doing what I'm doing. But basically what I'm trying to say is like the world <laughs> that I want would not yeah. would not be a world yeah. where we would have this type of thing. I wouldn't be using a computer yeah. to talk to you. Do you know what I mean? We wouldn't have this huge infrastructure That's... in order to facilitate this conversation. I wouldn't be a podcaster. I wouldn't be getting money from people on Patreon. <laughs> right. You know, like right. the thing I'm advocating for is my own like, destruction of my own little career here (laughs) so so to imagine somebody who is like a public intellectual who is maybe a a very popular leftist author if everything they're advocating for were to come to pass they would be kind of irrelevant (laughs) so it's it's funny right it's like the resistance becomes its own product its own commodity yeah yeah uh yeah i think the, the probably the most yeah there's a few examples i could point to um I guess I won't, but <laughs> in terms of individual people, um, um, that well, you, kind of caught up. You can that, call that. you can call people out on this. I'm no, gonna... no. I, I, well, uh, no, it's not. I'm, I'm no, just. I'm just. Not, no, yeah, it's not worth it. Yeah, but um, I'm kidding. Mostly. No, uh, no, yeah, um, yeah. It really, it really is that. Like we, we're, we're colonizers, and we grew up in that culture. So that's part of unconsciously what we've been brought up and trained to do is like, oh. You know, I want to, you know, you know, I, I'm, I'm that special, unique person that gets to, you know, use a computer, what X number of hours a day or something like that. And, you know, I, it's okay if I, 
you know, build up this social capital. And if I'm online, like I, like I can control it, I'm in control. And that's, that's the, that's the mind of an addict and the mind of a colonizer. And that's what we really have to extract ourselves, you know, to drop out of that type of society and like form something and listen to the people who have been telling us this for 500 years and for longer, listen to the indigenous, like listen to their stories, listen to how they, you know, they, grow food and how they access water and how they build shelters and make their own clothes and all those things. And they don't need money for any of it. Right. Mm -hmm. All these things that are just the, again, the, the luxury communist people are just like, not you guys, you guys aren't, you're not quite, you know, you're not getting it. You're kind of, again, like, I guess you, the, the Zapatistas would be probably the best, example what most well-known example of you know we're trying to build a different a different world you know right and um so yeah yeah and um you know i think i think that that again it sort of speaks to the the logic of the technologies we have and how it you know it's reshaped and remolded the discussion in such a way that it's like you have to really get at the underlying premises <laughs> that people have about these things, which can be really challenging. And, you know, you are addressing social capital. You are addressing all of the things that come with existing within the system. And, uh, you know, to really get to the point of it uh, can be, I think, really difficult for people to come to. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, I, I sympathize or empathize with because I'm there too, you know. Um yeah, it's a, it's an interesting contradiction within myself, just to speak to myself of using something that is ultimately not going to serve us in the long term if we have even a long term to consider, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, speaking the truth, though, about it is at least, <laughs> you know, valuable for sure. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, that's the thing is, like, we don't have a lot of time left to keep to keep up this very slow pace of, of reform or, you know, progressive reform, if you want to call it that. Um, so again, it's like we can, we can get with the program or, uh, or we can go extinct. So, um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a, again, yeah, you have to deal with a lot of, you have to deal with the grief that's like building up in you and that you've been like, trained your whole life to like oh this is what i have to do to have a career and it's like well if you want if you want to keep if you want to keep you know uh, a healthy you know intact biosphere you know you we can't keep doing this yeah 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 for sure well um I just wanted to ask one last thing, which is just about, uh, you know, just where people can find your work. I know there's your website, williamhaws.wordpress.com. You also have a Medium account. Um, and on the website, uh, people can find a link to your, it's an ebook, uh, Planetary Vision Essays on Freedom and Empire. Uh, you have quite a few essays that have appeared in Counterpunch, Global Research, Countercurrents, Gods and Radicals, uh, Dissident Voice, The Ecologist. Um, it's funny that we've been talking about social media this whole time, but do you have any <laughs> any places maybe people can find more of your work or like if they want to follow you at all, if you have any sort of place that you do any sort of updates or or what? Uh, yeah, definitely my website and my medium are the places to go. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's that's where you can find uh, no matter, I post all my stuff there no matter where 
all those all the other sites you mentioned uh, are a good places to check out too for for lots of other um, uh, people that are doing that are doing good work and trying to trying to fight the good fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll be putting links down below in the description to all of that. And, uh, you know, I just really have to recommend, I know all of your writing is really incredible. You, you really go into great detail and you, uh, I think your arguments are very sound, very good in, in all of them. But I think particularly the one we of course focused on for this interview, questioning the extremely online is, is really timely. It's very important. I think people really should dig deeply into it and read what you have to say because it's, uh, it's very it's it speaks to me personally and i think it speaks on a much broader social level as well so i really thank you for writing it and for sharing it with the world man and i thank you for taking time to speak with me today yeah thank you patrick it's been a pleasure and so i got cut off i think in that episode the kind of letting go of hope in the sense that things are not going to be business as usual, no matter how things change, freed me and it gave me a kind of clarity. And it's showed me that I am, I don't have a lot of time left. And I, in, in a very real sense, things are not going to last long. And that, not only does that give me urgency, that gives me time, ironically, to think. And I don't know if I would have reached these kinds of conclusions or began this journey that that started in a really difficult place if, you know, if I hadn't stumbled upon your work. And I, I really want to thank you for giving me some kind of direction that can point me towards necessity in my life because I feel like I've been lacking that. And this comes as an opportunity to reflect and push towards finding out what my heart is telling me to do. So thank you for that. From, from the bottom of my heart, your work changed my life and I can't express how much that means to me. So uh, I hope you have a great day. Bye. Jeff, that call was moving. Thank you. You know, I knew that when I released that episode with Dar and Barbara that it would hit that something would would have been struck, you know, some kind of part of, of, of those that are ready to listen, to have that discussion, to engage with what's presented in it, that episode was going to be very special for, for many people. Um, it was very special for me, obviously, being a part of it. You know, leading up to that interview, I had spent about a week with Dar and about two weeks, actually, with Barbara. It's a long story. Point is, I was there, and uh, actually, Dar kind of explains the whole situation in the uh, episode involving his friend um, Dwayne passing away the week before. So we recorded that interview just a week after Dar's experience of being by his friend's side as he passed away, and how that tied into 
his transition from being a journalist and, of course, Barbara's expertise, her deep knowing uh, how to help people cope, or not cope, but to help move through transitions. This all applies to what we're experiencing collectively, right? And you're feeling it. And, you know, when I was first hearing your call where you were saying how you listened to maybe a previous episode I did on climate disruption or and and also that episode with Parallax Views. By the way, Parallax Views is great. I just have asked people to go check out uh, J.G. Michael, uh, his uh, amazing podcast, Parallax Views. Been on there a couple times. Yeah, you know, I... I I think I've become so accustomed in a certain way to talking about it that I forget that when I put it out there, um, there are going to be people that are going to be maybe still coming into that acceptance and it's going to freak people out and it it does and it's understandable. And that's probably the right response. I mean, what else are you supposed to do when you hear about global climate change and the implications that, that all of this will have for our species in the near term? What is the appropriate response? Eh, whatever. Eh, it's probably not going to happen. Or, holy shit. What the fuck? You know, like, that should be the appropriate response to that. And then the inevitable questions that come up from there. So, I appreciate, Jeff, I just pre- appreciate your honesty in that, expressing that. Um, it, re- it keeps me grounded. It reminds me of my place uh, in what I'm doing. Uh, this is... I don't know why or how I got to where I am. It just somehow I'm this guy talking about this stuff and, and trying to have this discussion. And I'm, I'm very proud to do it. I'm very happy to do it. Proud of the work that I've been able to produce with other people. But nonetheless, it's an interesting thing to sort of sit back and think about, like, how the fuck did I get here? <laughs> um, anyway, um, I just want to address that. I, I feel like I had another kind of breakthrough moment talking with Barbara and Dar about it, sitting in their presence, sitting with them, having those conversations that we had all week, the whole time we were there, um, and especially that interview that I did with them. I feel like it kind of forced me to recognize that we don't really have time because I do slip into this state of almost soft denial where I don't really think it's real and that I have a lot of time, and I can just sort of fuck around and do what I want. And certainly, there is time. Let's not pretend like, you know, we're going to die tomorrow or something. We have time. But really, what is that time going to mean to us? How are we going to, like, fill that time? How are we going to be in this, this time that we have? And that should inform everything we do and how we engage in, in everything from our personal lives and how we choose to interact with those around us. Um, in, in, in how we choose to engage on a more social and uh, collective level, you know, as we enter into this time, how are we going to engage in activism or, or whatever? How do we want to spend our time? You know, Jeff, and I, I, I know for a fact that you are not alone. I don't know if you feel that way. I know that you know, because if you listen to this podcast and others, that of course you're not alone. But I just want you to understand that there are many, many people that are waking up to this fact that we don't have a lot of time and people are choosing to react to that information in different ways. It is important to keep our heads on straight just enough that we can make the right decisions. um, And, you know, even ask the right questions. And like Dar talks about, you know, being very, very quiet and listening to the earth, knowing what the earth, you know, the earth is asking us to do something right now. And we may not have an exact 
Like it may not be written down, like, you know, you go do this thing exactly. But all of us that are waking up to this crisis, that are waking up to what the earth is really asking of us, uh, we know that we have our, we have obligations, we have responsibilities as a species and as individuals, at the very least to speak the truth. And it's a huge responsibility. And a part of the panic, I think, that we're feeling when we come across this information is that, oh, we're not just here to work. We're not just here to serve this system. We're here to serve the earth. And what does that mean? And I think when that really comes into focus, when that really clicks on some level, panic ensues (laughs) because you're like, oh my God, this is real. This is very, very real. And so, you know, I think for me, like after doing that interview with Dar and Barbara, I think particularly I've had this feeling like I, I have a real opportunity to use this time in the best possible way that I can. And it's, it's amazing. Once that realization really sinks in and you begin to do the work, whatever that is, each person, each of you that are listening, you're going to have your own thing. And it's certainly going to involve people. This is a matrix of, of relationship. You know, we're all connected. So obviously it's not just going to be you alone, like this, you know, individual, but you will in fact have your own, as Dar says, walking orders or marching orders. You're going to know what you need to do eventually. And, um, and I, I mean, I just have sort of a, a sort of faith in that. I don't know if that's true or not. I just feel that it's true. Um, and, and working with the feelings that come up when we start to acknowledge what's happening on the planet right now, um, we can we can work through it. And as Barbara points to in that episode, I mean, grief. There is something on the other side of grief. It's not like grief goes away. It's it's as she said, it's iterative. It doesn't go away. It it reemerges and remanifests itself in all kinds of ways as the, as things fall apart. But we begin to acknowledge grief in our life and accept it. And don't deny its presence. And we begin to work with it, and it becomes our partner in this work. And we need grief. We need it to ground us and to keep us humble, to make us remember why we're here. (laughs) So, I don't know. I I just have a lot of random thoughts, Jeff, but you left such a gorgeous message for me. And I've received a lot of different comments, uh, feedback from other people from that episode. So to all of you that have responded well to it, thank you for your messages. I really mean that. Yeah, I've got nothing else to, to say. I just, Jeff, you're great. Thank you. And to anybody else that wants to do that, uh, do what Jeff did, um, you know, drop me a line down in the description. There's a phone number. There's also a uh, file drop option as well. So please consider sending me your thoughts, whether it's about that episode with Dar and Barbara or, or any other episode. So please consider sending that my way. Uh, Thank you all so much for listening to this episode and uh, talk to you next week. Bye. Hey there. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support this project monetarily, here are a few options. You can send a one-time donation to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast, and you can treat that a bit like a tip jar. And if you'd really like to sustain this work, consider supporting the project through Patreon. 
go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness and donate to the production of this podcast for $1 or more a month. And by doing that, you'll gain early access to these interviews and discussions before the official public release, and also gain access to some exclusive content there as well. As a great psychedelic bard Terrence McKenna said, take it easy, dude, but take it.